We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 20. This is the inerrant, infallible word of God. Receive it with meekness. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is a light to our path. It is our desire to conform to it. And by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would quicken this word to our hearts. Enable me to clearly and faithfully uh, bring every aspect of it that needs to be taught. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Sometimes a person's last words can indicate where their priorities uh, were or at least what they had been thinking about recently, or perhaps had uh, been preoccupying a lot of their time. Uh, for example, Marie Antoinette was uh, to be executed on the guillotine in uh, the French Revolution. And you could tell, just even up to the last moments of her life, that her life revolved around social etiquette, because as she was being led up the steps to the guillotine, she accidentally stepped on the executioner's uh, foot. And so her last words were, Pardonnez-moi, monsieur. Uh, excuse me, sir. And it was recorded because it seemed like such an odd thing to be asking pardon for stepping on his foot when he's the one that's going to be about to take your head off. Uh, Dominique Bouhers endlessly promoted a higher standard of uh, grammar. And uh, his last words were, I am about to or I am going to die. Either expression is used. <laughs> and he died just moments later. <laughs> Uh, teacher right to the end. Uh, Gabriel Donunzo was a big partier, a traveler, uh, just constantly wanting to have fun. And you could see what was important to her because all she could think of saying as she was dying is, I am so bored, I am bored, and then she died. Sad, incredibly sad words. Uh, because again, uh, sometimes these last words reflect you know, where a person's life is at. Queen Elizabeth I of England said, All my possessions for a moment of time. She feared death, had no security in death. Uh, James Rogers, jokester to the end, was uh, to be executed in 1960 in Nevada by a firing squad. And when he was asked what his last request was, asked if he had any last request, he says, Why, yes, I'd like a bulletproof vest. <laughs> <laughs> But I love Matthew Henry's last words. He says, A life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in the world. And then he died. And I thought those were, that was cool last words. Now, these are not really the last words of James in his life, but I think they are a glorious conclusion to this book because they show his pastor's heart. His whole life had been revolved in pastoring people and drawing them to wholeness. And even though he was tough as nails in some of the places of this book, he shows that he really loves them and he wants these people to be restored. And his last words to these people are he wants them to have a heart of restoration. He wants them uh, to be uh, having pastor's hearts even if they're not pastors. And uh, even though he ends his uh, epistle rather abruptly, it's not like Paul. Paul just fills the ends of his epistles with greetings to this person and that, and he gives love to this person. It's rather abrupt, but I think it's a wonderful conclusion. And it's something that I want our church uh, to be characterized by, that we have a heart towards those who stray. Now, I think the first the most obvious truth that we can find in these verses is that our church needs to be a brotherhood and a sisterhood of restoration. Now, that can be tough because it's not always an easy thing. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes people get upset with us. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, we can cringe when we're trying to restore these people. And sometimes after we have expressed our love and our, we're trying to work on these people, uh, they are doing a, a smear campaign against our reputation, and yet the Lord wants us to love one another enough that we will take the risk of reaching out when people are falling into sin and are falling uh, away, to risk disapproval, to risk attack. And what frequently happens in the 20th century is the exact opposite. People have made themselves a nuisance in the church, and the people in the church say, good riddance. 
you know, you know, be gone. They don't want restoration there. Uh, instead of uh, uh, preaching the gospel, they're gossiping about this person. Instead of bringing them back to the hospital, they're kicking them when they're down. And you can understand why, because many times when you are in a ministry of restoration, you get the abuse. You know, here you are trying to help these people and they turn on you. And so it is a difficult ministry and yet it's a ministry that God wants the whole church to be characterized by. Uh, I want you to notice also who it is that is called to this work of restoration. You would think that having just talked about the elders anointing with oil and praying over the people, and I would add parenthetically, he actually calls all of the people there to pray for one another's healing. But you might think, you know, okay, it's the elders. We can just pawn this job off on the elders, you know, and on the, on the pastor. And James won't let us do that. Uh, he indicates this is something that every brother and sister needs to be committed to because God may be bringing something into their proximity, some person into their proximity that they need to be ministering to. And so he begins these verses here. He says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone, not just an elder, but someone, turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's a brother that is restoring this uh, other brother to the Lord. And I think what James is doing is he's just appealing to the Old Testament doctrine of the universal priesthood of believers. I've heard so many people say that the doctrine that Luther brought to the forefront of the universal priesthood of believers, that's a New Testament doctrine. The Old Testament, they had priests, now everybody's a priest. No, that's not the case at all. If you look at the verse that everybody appeals to, to teach universal priesthood, which is 1 Peter 2, verse 5, it is quoting Exodus 19, verse 6. This is an Old Testament doctrine. It's not New Testament at all. In Exodus... Uh, God tells the people, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moses did not want the people saying, oh, we got a professional priesthood. We can just pawn everything off on them. He says, no, there are people who are full time in this, but everyone is responsible to be a priest before the Lord. And so the universal priesthood means that when you see individuals who are slipping, slipping, who are wandering away from the Lord, you need to come alongside of them and encourage them, exhort them, seek to bring them back. In Hebrews chapter 10, it describes the process of a person falling away from the faith into total apostasy, and it's in that context that he says these words. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. He is saying, when we're gathered together, it's not just so the pastor can exhort you. It's so that we can exhort one another in the body. We're all ministers in this together. Thirdly, I want you to notice who is capable of backsliding and of heading towards certain death. He says, brethren, if anyone among you wonders, it's clearly a professing believer who is wandering away and heading toward uh, this death. And that word anyone indicates anyone in the church can fall if they are not careful. I don't think that people in the church are immune to a scandal. Uh, some of you in this congregation, I believe, have everything that it takes to have a fall. Uh, you are not watching yourselves uh, and the way in which you relate to other people. And some of the things uh, I think are fairly obvious and fairly visible to me. Uh, sometimes we flaunt ourselves, sometimes the way we flirt. But some of the things are utterly invisible to us, to your brothers, your sisters, or anybody else. It's what you're doing in your head, uh, loving sin flirting with sin and not dealing with it. Uh, for some of you, it may be simply that uh, your love for God has grown cold. Uh, prayer is a thing of the past. And you know what ha is happening to you when you're doing that? What is happening is that you are wandering away from the campfire of God's grace and His love, totally oblivious to the glowing eyes out there in the darkness that are watching your movement away from God's safety. That's exactly what has happened. And many times people are oblivious to what is happening to them until it's too late. They're out there and they're being taken down by those spiritual animals, those demons out there. I've talked, for example, to pastors who justified 
uh, living without hedges in their life. And they say, oh, Phil, that's legalistic. You don't need to worry about that. I'm strong. I'm not going to fall. And I've told them, look, greater men than you have fallen into sin. Uh, what you're doing here, I think, is just leading toward danger. And they just wouldn't hear of it. And sure enough, a couple years later, I hear that they have fallen into sexual sin and they've been barred from the ministry. Uh, I have talked to, uh, to men and to uh, uh, women who... Uh, think that God's principles of courtship are just legalistic, you know, and they like uh, to recreationally uh, date and to kiss and to hug, and they're not even marrying these people, and they get themselves into trouble. I've talked to them before, I've talked to them afterwards, and they say beforehand they're not going to fall, and afterwards they say I didn't intend to fall, you know, but they set themselves up in the way in which they uh, fail to guard against their flesh. I talked to a Christian gal who was opposed to abortion before she got her abortion, and she was opposed to abortion after she got her abortion. She never dreamed that she would get a uh, an abortion, but fear of getting caught because of her pregnancy caused her to become a murderer just as much as it caused King David, the man after God's own heart, to become a murderer because he feared getting caught. And so who's capable of sinning? Every one of us in this congregation is capable of backsliding very far if we do not guard ourselves, if we do not take heed to what James is talking about in this, in this passage here. Any one of us can be taken down by the spiritual beasts out there when we wander too far from the campfire. Now, there is an encouraging word in that sentence, too, and it's the word if. Now, the word if is a contingency word. A contingency means it may happen or it may not happen. It can go either direction, which to me means... That, that backsliding is not a foregone conclusion. It is not a foregone conclusion. Now, some people think that, uh, you know, the pull of our flesh is so strong, everybody backslides, and, you know, it's just a foregone conclusion, and they either grie grieve over it continually, or they just say, what's the point of even trying? They think everybody's going to backslide, and why even bother to try? What I want to tell you is that is simply not true. Paul says, yes, sin does abound, but where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, much more. <clears throat> um, Jude ends his words, uh, his uh, epistle with these words, which encourage me. And I've seen people who have guarded their lives so that they do not backslide, many people. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, he is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to present you faultless. And those are not just empty words of rhetoric. How does God begin the book of Job? He begins it with these words of evaluation of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. It's possible to keep from backsliding. It is possible. Job was a man who had a sin nature. In fact, his sin, sin nature comes out later on in the book, but he guarded himself against the impulses of that sin nature to such an extent that God was able to say this to Satan in verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now I want you to think about that for a moment, because we reform people, we emphasize the depravity of man so much that it's very easy for us to go to the opposite extreme and to say, you know, the, 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 the depravity is there to such an extent none of us can help but sin. No, we can conquer sin, even though there's going to be a sin nature will never be completely freed from all vestiges of sin. But think about these words here. God challenges Satan. Have you considered Job? Well, Job has been considered by Satan. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He was used to tallying up all of the sins and accusing the brethren for all of the things that they had done, and he could not find a single thing in Job's life that he could bring accusation for. Why? Because Satan cannot read the heart. He cannot see what is inside of Job's heart. He knows there is a sin nature there, and that's why he says to God, yeah, you just start letting me deal with him, and you take away your grace from him. He will fall. I guarantee you he will fall. So he knows he has a sin nature, but he cannot accuse him, which to me again shows that even though Job later on allows some of that sin nature to cause him to speak rashly with his mouth, at this point God himself said, Job did not sin with his mouth. 
And you can be brought to a place where you do not sin with your mouth. You can keep yourself uh, pure. Is backsliding a, a foregone conclusion? I have to say no, it is not. Is keeping your body pure before the Lord an impossible task, you know, that Paul is commanding when he says keep your vessels pure? No, it is not an impossible command. Is keeping your mind pure something that is an impossible command that the Scripture gives to you? By God's grace, no. You know, when I was a teenager and into my early 20s, I had as much struggle with immoral thoughts as probably anybody did, and it drove me crazy. I tried and I tried to purify my mind and get rid of those thoughts, and I could not. And a pastor finally showed me some of the steps that Jesus used to maintain purity of mind, and that enabled me not only to completely clean up my thought life during the day, but also my dream life at night. God's methodologies do work, and if we put them into practice, we're not going to get rid of our sin nature, but we will be able to restrain it. And we will be able to outwardly begin to develop a blameless life before the Lord. And so, is backsliding a foregone conclusion? No. While everyone of us needs to heed the caution of the former point that apart from God's grace, any of us can fall into any sin. There but for the grace of God go I. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Even though we need to guard against that, we need to take the comfort of this point as well and strive toward the upward call that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. Now let's look at the process of backsliding. When James says, if anyone among you wanders, the word for wanders has two components. There's a, a component of gradual drifting away, and then there's a component of, of deceit. And I want to deal with the deceit part first. First step in our downward slide is to be deceived into thinking that what we are doing is not wrong, that it's okay what we are doing. That's almost always there. And when you try to confront a person at that point, I tell you, it takes an act of God to convince this person that it is right. Because self-deception uh, can be so strong. If they're falling into pride, they don't recognize it. Everybody else can tell this person is a proud person. They can, it's sort of like bad breath, you know. You can't tell you got bad breath. Everybody else can. That's the thing that worries me after I've been to the Italian restaurant. You've got these great big, you know, roasted garlic things, and you squeeze that out on the bread. Mmm, wonderful. But you worry. You think, boy, it ought to be a law that everybody has to eat garlic every day so they won't notice my breath, you know. But uh, that's the way people think, even when it comes to sin. And the Scripture indicates that we can justify just about anything. For example, if somebody is engaging in petty theft at the office, and he is confronted on that, or maybe he's not even confronted, but he's brought conviction by the Spirit in his heart. He can justify himself so easily. You know, he could say, you know, I'm not being paid what I am worth anyway. I really deserve more. In fact, that boss is stealing from me. I'm just getting back a little bit of what I deserve. We can so easily justify any of the sins that we engage in. If David could justify his sin of adultery and murder... Uh, we can justify just about anything that comes along if we are not on guard against the deceptiveness of our heart. And uh, almost every big sin involves justification of little sins. So there's deception. The next step is to avoid the truth. Well, obviously, we have to do that because if we've deceived ourselves into thinking this is okay... I mean, you can just sense. You don't even want to think about that sin or any scriptures that apply because you might be convicted that you're wrong, you might have to repent, and that might be really embarrassing. And so you try to avoid the truth. So he says here that they're wandering from the truth. There's a movement away from truth. Why is it, why is it that uh, churches that preach hardcore truth are usually not packed out except during times of revival? <laughs> it's because the truth is not popular. But you know what? Even within churches where there is the truth being spoken, people can avoid the truth. How do they do it? Well, they do it in ways like this. They say, boy, I sure hope so-and-so is listening to this sermon. He really needs it. He is so bad, you know. And they are agreeing with the tr truth, but all the time avoiding the truth because they're not applying it to their own life. They're not saying to the Holy Spirit, search my heart and see if there is any wicked way in me. Open mine eyes that I might see wonderful things out of your word. And so they're avoiding uh, the, the truth that God has given. Uh, we cannot be static when it comes to truth. We're either going forward or we're going backward. Backsliding 
or forward sliding, <laughs> forward walking, I guess it's not sliding. But then the word planaomai, which is translated here as wanders, means to move about without definite destination, particular purpose, to wander about. Hebrews 11.38 translates that they wandered in the deserts and hills. And so this speaks of compromise, but it speaks of a gradual drift. It takes time uh, frequently for this to happen. Uh, you probably all know the story of the farmer who decided that he really needed to save money on the feed that he was giving to his mule. And so he thought that he would mix a little bit of sawdust with the oats that he was feeding to the mule. And the first day, he just mixed a little bit of uh, sawdust in. Uh, mule ate it, no problem. Every day, he added more sawdust and decreased the amount of oats. And the mule just didn't seem to mind, and he seemed to be getting along just quite okay. And so uh, over a period of weeks, he was experimenting till finally on the day when he was feeding the mule nothing but sawdust, the mule ate his last meal, and he collapsed. Now, obviously, it's a fictitious story, but it's a parable of the way Christians frequently live. They are drifting from the truth, and it may seem very subtle initially. They're just mixing God's word with a little bit of humanistic wisdom, or they're mixing it with a little bit of humanistic, unwarranted entertainment. And initially, nobody maybe even notices, but as there is more and more sin being mixed in, and there is less and less of the, uh, the spiritual uh, strength that comes from God's Spirit in there, what happens is the person who is stuffed on spiritual sawdust eventually collapses and falls over, and everybody's shocked. Where did that come from? How come this person fell? Well, it was actually happening a long time before that day when they fell into sin. It, uh, it was a gradual process. Now, let me quickly list some of the other ways that we can backslide under point D there. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, we might think that the friendship that we have developed, you know, is an okay thing and um, that we're supposed to reach out uh, to the world anyway and uh, convince ourselves that we are there to witness, whether it's in a dating situation, you know, well, I'm not really dating, we're just having fun and I'm witnessing to this guy, uh, whatever the thing might be. But we find out that we're really not, we're kind of embarrassed on certain things to bring up the truths that we hold to, and we're the ones being influenced by them rather than us influencing the other party. And uh, over time, we begin to adopt their lifestyle and their behavior. We begin to cuss like they cuss, and we begin to have their priorities in life. That's what we're talking about here. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. A second way is to spurn the Spirit's conviction. Ephesians calls it grieving the Spirit. Uh, Psalm 119, 118 says of God, you reject all those who stray from your statutes, for their deceit is falsehood. You have deliberately rejected the Spirit's conviction in your life. You've convinced yourself, oh, it's a small thing, I can ignore it anyway. It doesn't matter how small it is. If you have grieved the Holy Spirit of God, says He, he will reject you. That's what happened in uh, Samson's life uh, toward the end of his um, um, time with Delilah on that last time it says he did not know that the spirit had departed from him he didn't have any of the power he did not realize that uh, now he later repented and was restored to fellowship but uh, many times it's initially just a, a spurning of the spirit's conviction thirdly James 1.15 describes a wayward thought that is entertained which can give birth to sin which can then give birth to death. And so uh, some of the things we think about. Fourth, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2 says, Some people depart from the faith simply because they have been listening to false doctrine too long. And that false doctrine, which lies against the truth, sears their conscience, and over time they lo lose any ability to be discerning. I have seen this happen in mainline denominations where people have stayed there in order to be a re reforming influence, but they have been hearing so much false doctrine that over time they don't have discernment. They don't know where the marks are between the black and the white. There's these vast chasms of gray. And so he says in that verse there, that when we listen to false doctrine, we can eventually begin to justify just about anything. 
I, it scares me when people express hatred for doctrine when they haven't even studied that doctrine out. Um, I had one evangelical. Uh, he said, I would never worship a God who would send anyone to hell. And I said, well, then you've got a God in your own image because the God of the Bible clearly believes that there is a hell. He has created a hell. And you need to repent of worshiping idolatry. And... Uh, uh, you know, it, 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 to me, it's a scary thing. When you set up what you determine is the truth, God's the determiner of truth, not us, and we need to conform. Fifth, Hebrews 10, the passage I quoted earlier about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, that's a passage, if you read it in context, that indicates that this assembling of ourselves together is to prevent apostasy. He is indicating that the uh, apostasy is so easy to happen, we can fall away from the Lord if we are not gathering together, exhorting one another, especially during difficult times. Uh, you know, when you take coals and you group them all together, they stay hot for a long time. You scatter them out, they get cold very quickly. And that passage in Hebrews 10 is saying the same thing about us. When we disperse ourselves and we don't fellowship, we're not involved in accountability, it's so easy for us to apostasy, uh, apostatize in some way. Here's another one, Hebrews 12:15 looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. He is saying when you allow bitterness to stay in your heart, it will defile you. Over time, it will defile your spouse, your children, your siblings. It'll, it'll defile other people in the congregation. I have seen people with bitterness who have not been willing to uh, 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 deal with that bitterness you can just see the bitterness spreading from person to person. It corrupts. And once you get defiled by bitterness, again, that passage indicates you can backslide in other areas as well. Okay, just one more. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Beware, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is cold today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He says, if you allow unbelief over anything that God has said to grip your heart, it can cause you over time to depart from God and to justify other sins. And it can be a small thing. You might say, well, I don't want to believe this doctrine because I'll get in trouble with my spouse. Or I don't want to believe this doctrine because I may get in trouble with my friends or other people. And this unbelief that has gripped your heart, even though you have justified it as being a small thing that you can ignore, he says, that can lead. It's anything. I don't know. There's many different ways in which you can slide down this hill. Now, the fifth question in the outline is this. Is there hope for a backslider? And I think we have to say absolutely, yes, there is, if there is repentance. Uh, the words turns him back and the word the words, turns a sinner from the error of his way, show that it's possible to turn from backsliding. Now, we can't presume upon it because we could get to the point of no return. Uh, and I believe that the unpardonable sin, uh, that, that, that speaking against the Holy Spirit, in Hebrews, it seems to tie it in with having gone too far uh, and it's only an unbeliever, I think, somebody who's not regenerate could engage in that sin. But we never know when we have gone too far. But there is hope for brothers who have uh, been uh, falling away for some time, and even for people who have been excommunicated. Paul says that the purpose of excommunication is not to get rid of trouble. It's to restore a person, restore a person to the fellowship. And uh, uh, right now, we've been dealing with a person who is under discipline, and probably in a week, if there is no uh, repentance, will be excommunicated. And our hope is that this person will be restored to the church. We had been trying to restore them to any church, but at this point, it's going to have to be once the excommunication happens to this church, because no other church would restore him. And so you may want to be in prayer. The last question is this. How serious is backsliding? And the simple answer is it's extremely serious. Uh, when we're on a downward slide, we can never presume, I'll just repent later. Because more frequently than not, what happens is later you don't see the need for repentance. You become hardened to that need for repentance. Uh, the, the word that is used there to uh, mean uh, for error, 
is literally, if you look it up in the dictionary, it just means deceived. It means deceived. And so it could be a person who is self-deceived, he's demonically deceived, he's deceived by a cult, doesn't matter. But when a person has embraced deception, it is so hard to reclaim that person because self-deception is re self-reinforcing. It's really hard to get the person out of that. And what it takes many times is apologetics to pierce through the armor that they have put around themselves like Nathan did with, with David. And so the, the deception itself shows how serious it is. The second thing that makes it so serious is that backsliding is a path that moves ever farther away. It speaks of his way, and those words literally in the Greek mean his road or his pathway. Okay, So it's not a static position. Backsliding is movement. And so it's movement away from the Lord, and it's movement toward the ways of death is what he is talking about here. Now, this means that the longer a person stays on that pathway, the harder it is to return and the longer it takes to return. Now, of course, even there, there are examples of a number of people who have returned after years of backsliding. And so it is possible, but they are, they, they are few. I shouldn't say that there are many. And when they do return, many times they've got strongholds of Satan, they've got habits. It's really hard for them to... Uh, get those taken care of. But for your encouragement, let me give you an example of a person who returned to the Lord, and I got this from Osbeck's hymn stories. Some of you know the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? Well, that was written by Robert Robinson. He was a person that was saved out of a, a horrible life of sin uh, through the ministry of uh, George Whitfield in England. And this guy appeared to have been regenerated. He see, You saw changes in his life. You saw uh, an incredible testimony, a love for the Lord. He wrote this hymn during those times of his, his glorious new love for the Lord. But what happened is little by little, he made these small compromises, did not repent over small things, and he began to drift. And he finally drifted all the way back into his former debauched lifestyle. And many people who looked at him wondered, maybe this guy was never regenerated in the first place. He was a prodigal son, but it didn't appear like it because he was comfortable in his sin. And how in the world can a regenerate person be comfortable in a backslidden situation? Well, he appeared to be, but one day he was traveling by stagecoach, and he was sitting beside a lady who was engrossed in this book, and she was reading a poem in this book that she really liked, and when she read it, she just thought it was so beautiful. She put the book down, she said, have you ever seen anything like this? And I forget now if she read it or if he, she had him read it. But to her surprise, he burst into tears and he said that that was the hymn that he had written. He said, Madame, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Now, she was kind of taken aback and surprised uh, by what he said, but she, she said, well, you know, the streams of mercy that that hymn talks about continue to flow to sinners. And if you would repent, the Lord would restore you. And he was restored to the Lord and completely to fellowship. But it was, I thought it was so cool how the Lord put her into the stagecoach uh, with that book. Now, I give that story both to encourage, because some of you have relatives and uh, friends who have backslidden. And you're grieving over them. And you're wondering, can the Lord bring them back? So I'm giving that to encourage you. Yes, God can bring those people back. And we need to pray. And we need to be involved in the restoration process. But I also give that story to warn you, those of you who I can see some of the signs of backsliding in your lives already, that it's the little things that can so easily lead you to be devoured by those demons out in the darkness. Now, the third thing in the text that shows the seriousness of backsliding is that unless the backsliding is reversed, it will lead to death. James says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. Now, this has been a puzzling verse for a lot of people because it's talking about a brother headed toward death. 
What in the world is he talking about here? Brethren, if anyone among you wanders, he's talking about a brother. How can a brother, how can a saved person be headed toward death? Well, there's different explanations that people have given. Five-point Arminians say that this person was a true believer, but he lost his salvation. He was regenerate, but he lost his salvation. We object and we say, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And they rejoined her. They say, well, nobody can snatch you out of Christ's hand, but you can jump out of his hand. Uh, your free will can lose you your salvation. And we respond, but that doesn't make sense because it contradicts the first half of that verse, which says, I will give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. It's not eternal life. If you have it now and then you lose it and then you can gain it again and lose it, it's temporary life. And he said, I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And they respond, yes, but eternal life presupposes eternal faith. And actually there is an element of truth in that because we believe that when God gives faith, it is, it is something that lasts. But we respond to them and we say, God is the giver of faith. And he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And um, <clears throat> it's all of grace. It's not of works. And if our works don't gain us our salvation, then our works cannot lose our salvation. If free will does not gain salvation, free will cannot lose our salvation. And to say that salvation is lost because of our sin is to say that salvation is based upon our good works. That's really what it amounts to. Paul said that he was persuaded that nothing in all of creation could separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us, and that includes our free will. Now, the five-point Arminian will appeal to Matthew 7.21, which says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And the five-point Calvinist, interestingly, agrees with the five-point Arminian that if there is no perseverance that person will not be saved. He will not be in heaven. We agree with them that Hebrews says, pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. We agree with them. Salvation was designed to save us from our sins. But Arminians say we are saved because we persevere and Calvinists say we persevere because we are saved. And there is a world of difference between those two phrases. We do not deny that some professing believers will lose their, not lose, some professing believers will apostatize and end up in hell. We don't deny that. I think the scripture is very clear that professing believers uh, can, uh, uh, can uh, end up in hell. But what we would say is it's proof positive that their profession was a false profession, that they were never saved in the first place. Does that make sense? And so whether you're a five-point Arminian or you're a five-point Calvinist, you need to take these words seriously, either direction. Now, even among five-point Calvinists, there are different interpretations of this verse. And really, it doesn't matter which way you take this. He's saying backsliding is serious. Don't ever presume that you're going to get out of it. Uh, but here's the question. Is this spiritual death that James is talking about, or is it physical death? And I think you could argue either way. Uh, those who say it is spiritual death in hell will point to the fact that it's a soul that he is talking about that is being saved from death, not a body, a soul. Those who say it's the body that is going to be destroyed will say, yeah, but the word soul here is many times translated as person. It can mean person. And so you could go either direction. I'm not sure we have to choose, but we know no truly regenerate person can lose his salvation. The trouble is we don't know for sure whether the person, and sometimes we can be self-deceived about our own regeneration. How do you tell? Well, Scripture says, by their fruits you will know them. And there need to be changes in a person's life. Where are the fruits, is what Jesus uh, was uh, saying. And how do you discover those fruits? Well, you look at what the Spirit produces. The Spirit of God produces in it, within us faith. He causes us to persevere. And even when we backslide, there will eventually be repentance and a pursuing after holiness. Now, 1 John gives us a balance here. 1 John starts off by saying, 
that if we say we have no sin, we are liars. We don't even know the truth, okay? So we can't go to perfectionism. We can't go to that extreme. So we have to say everybody has sin in their lives, but then just a couple verses later he says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. See, the Spirit of God hates sin, and if He is indwelling you, He is going to cause you to hate sin and to long for holiness. And if you don't have any longing for holiness, the likelihood is that you are not regenerate. You may be a church member. You may have professed, you may have convinced everybody else that you are regenerate. But if you do not have the evidences of God's Spirit working within you, hating your sin and loving righteousness, you need to cry out to God because it is an evidence of lack of regeneration. No new nature within. It is a counterfeit. Now, First John uh, says of apostates, they went out from us that it might be made manifest that they were never of us. In other words, they didn't lose their salvation. They were never of us. They were never regenerate, is what he is saying. What they had was a counterfeit assurance. And you know what? The doctrine of once saved, always saved, if the doctrine, at least the way it's many times presented, is a doctrine from the devil. I believe in the perseverance of the saints, which many people believe is once saved, always saved. But the way many times people present that doctrine, they present it, make a profession of faith, and you can live like the devil for the rest of your life. You are secure. You're going to heaven. That is not the comfort that God gives. That is not the comfort that God gives to his people. The Bible says the truly saved will persevere in their faith and their fight against sin until they get to heaven, and if they are not persevering, it is an evidence that they were never saved in the first place. And so let's read that verse from Matthew 7 again to show uh, you that it really cannot be taken in the way intended by five-point Arminians. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying here, not everybody who makes a profession of faith is in the kingdom. There are people who have made profession of faith. They've convinced other people that they're in the kingdom. They say, Lord, Lord, and they've been admitted into church membership, but God hasn't admitted them into the kingdom. They're still in Satan's kingdom. That's all he's saying there is uh, not everybody who makes a profession uh, who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's the whole point of salvation, is to make a people who do God's will. It's to save his people from their sins. In fact, Matthew one twenty one, when the angel came to Joseph, he says, You shall name, call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He did not come to make us comfortable in sin. He did not come just to make a way to heaven. He came to transform his people. In fact, let me give you from Titus 2.14 what the whole purpose of Christ's life was. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's why he gave himself. And so Jesus is saying, if you have a profession of faith, Lord, Lord, but you have no change in life, you have deceived yourself. You are not a Christian. Professions of faith are not enough. He goes on to explain, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He doesn't say, you were saved once, I knew you once, but now I don't know you anymore. He says, I never knew you. They never were regenerate. They never were in his family. And then people will say, well, how come they were able to prophesy? And how come they were able to do many mighty signs and works and things like that? Well, that's easy. Even the Antichrist could do miracles. Uh, the, the presence of miracles is no sign of regeneration. What is a sign of regeneration? Is you are indwelt by God's Spirit. You are evidencing a new heart that loves righteousness, that hates sin. And when you stumble into sin, you get up and you go again. You don't give up. You lay claim to the Lord's grace. You follow hard after Him. That is something no unregenerate can want or can have. Now, again, don't get me wrong. We cannot read the heart. In fact, the Scripture says we're not supposed to read the heart. I, as a pastor, am not going to call any of you unregenerate. I can say I'm worried about you because of the things I'm seeing in your lives. But as long as you are not excommunicated, I treat you as a brother, okay, or a sister, 
once you are excommunicated, even if I suspect that you are a believer, I cannot treat you as a believer. Even if you have excommunicated yourself and you said, I don't believe in the church, I'm not going to be a member of the church, you may be regenerate. That's okay. But Jesus says, I still have to treat you as a heathen and publican. In other words, there is a, a certain tyranny that can happen when pastors try to read people's hearts. And I've seen it happen. All we can deal is objectively with people in terms of professions of faith and the fruits that come out, discipline, things like that. So it's not talking about reading uh, people's hearts. Um, Okay, I think I've said enough on that. Now, some people take this as a reference to physical death, that God will bring disease and eventual death in order to bring a true believer to repentance. And in light of verses 15 through 16, that makes perfect sense. God's brought disease into the life. If there's, no repent if there's repentance, there's healing. No repentance, it may lead to death. You know, within the context, that, uh, that, that could work. And there are many scriptures that teach this. 1 Corinthians 11. Some of the people had already progressed to the point of death because of discipline. First uh, John 5 and others. In fact, uh, in our presbytery, we had a pastor who had exactly this happening to him. He was a, a married man who had a crush on a married lady in his congregation. And he talked that lady into divorcing her husband. And he was in the process of divorcing his wife when presbytery found out about it, came in, took him out of the ministry, began process of discipline with him. He absolutely refused to repent. This was back in the early 80s. And I remember pleading with this guy. I wasn't even a pastor back then, but pleading with him to, to repent and to reconsider. And he was saying that what he was doing was within the will of God. And I was demonstrating from the Scripture, this is contrary to God's will. And he said, well, it may not be God's perfect will, but it is His permissive will because God led me to do this. And I, I was t talking with him and saying... Brother, it could not be God's leading. He does not contradict himself. You, your leading, if you got it, was either from a demon or from your flesh because God would never contradict his word. But you could see the downward spiral. And finally, God must have decided enough is enough, and he took him out. He gave him a rare brain virus. And in the hospital, when he was lying there, uh, he, he thanked Presbytery for having disciplined him. And he thanked God for having disciplined him because he knew he was going to die, and he got right with God. But there are times when God takes a person so far, he says, I don't care. Sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So either way you interpret this passage, it shows the seriousness of, uh, of backsliding. Never ignore the symptoms of sin. Fear it. Hate it. Cling to the Lord. Repent of your sin. And every one of us needs to have the attitude there, but for the grace of God, we would be. Now, the final reason we should take this seriously is that once you start down this road of backsliding... It is impossible to stop with just one sin. It is absolutely impossible to stop with just that one sin. If that is not repented of, sin starts springing up everywhere like dandelions. And I've seen this in the counseling situations over and over again. You just see the multiplication of sin everywhere. And they, they won't repent of this one. They have no power to repent of anything else, even the ones that they want to repent of. They can't. Anyway, it says here that the restoration of the brother quickly not only saves a sinner from the error of his way, but saves a soul from death, and it says will cover a multitude of sins. Anytime there is backsliding, there is a multitude of sins. The, it's just like snowball, you know, that it starts accumulating, rolling down the hill, and it gets bigger and bigger, and eventually it ends up on a mountainside. You know, it can end up into a huge avalanche, and people wonder, how come everything's going wrong in my life? is because they were not willing to nip sin in the bud right at the beginning. And so it's a whole lot harder to deal with that huge snowball at the bottom of the mountain than it was this initial sin up here. But we, we, we tend to be self-deceived. We refuse to repent when it's easy to repent. We want to wait, and it becomes harder and harder to do so. And so if we love the brethren, we must have a balance between two verses. First verse, love covers a multitude of sins. Second verse, love confronts sin. And even the confrontation of sin 
is covering here, it says, a multitude of sins. So what we need to do, love covers a multitude of sins. When you are restoring a person, you're going to have all kinds of sins that are going to be a grief in your life, maybe a tax on your life. And we need to make sure that we're in a position that we are not, um, uh, we're not overly uh, sensitive or easily offended by the attacks of these people, but we must be a church that perseveres in praying for, exhorting, and encouraging those who stray to come back to the Lord. Let's be a church of restoration. Amen. Father God, thank you so much for the life of Jesus Christ who restored prostitutes and sinners and those who had heaped up sin upon sin in their lives. Thank you for how your grace broke through the rationalization of sins in the lives of the apostles, in the lives of of, uh, people like Nicodemus and even the tax collector Zacchaeus. Thank you, Lord, that you can break through into our lives, that you are able to keep us from stumbling. And I pray, O God, that your spirit would be working, your convicting power in the lives of each and every one of us in this congregation, that we might be a pure people. Help us also, Father, to be a loving people. Help us not to fear what other people think about us. Father, so many times we fail to repent and ask forgiveness of each other because we're scared of what other people will think of us. Help us, Father, to be more fearful of you than we are of those who are around us. Help us, Father, to uh, love you but respect you and tremble before your word. And I pray that the fear of man would not be a snare in our lives, but that we would be completely liberated from that into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Father, I pray that you would anoint this people with your empowering that we talked about in the Lord's table and that your greater works would be done in and through us. Help us to show forth the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, a love that is patient, a love that is kind, that is not easily uh, provoked, that is not puffed up, that thinks of the other person's welfare before it thinks of our own welfare, that does not complain about the things that other people do to us instead, that suffers long and is kind. Father, help us. Uh, that, uh, to have the kind of love that you have called us to have. In ourselves, we cannot generate this. Our flesh avails nothing. And so I pray that you would shed abroad in the hearts of each and every one here the supernatural love that comes from above. And Father, as we step out in the obedience of faith, stepping on the water as it were, doing the impossible, that you would come through on behalf of each one here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.